0: Support for LAist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montell and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at laist.com slash events.
2: From Home Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Ending a drought takes a lot of rain. Dealing with a drought? California lawmakers hope making it rain with cash will help the state manage the dry days ahead. Plus, before the Derek Chauvin verdict came in, some were dreading hearing acquittal. Now there's dread on the decision that comes next, sentencing. It's ahead on Take Two. Stay with us.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round.
2: From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for sharing your Friday with us. All right, let's kick things off with State of Affairs. It's our weekly dive into California's political pool. All right, so what's the best way to end a drought? We'll get a lot of rain. What's the next best thing? Democrats in the California State Senate hope the answer is to make it rain with cash. We'll get into that in just a bit. But first, a look at the national stage. For years, Joe Biden has embraced being seen as a centrist. But the kind of money Biden has been talking about spending in his first 100 days has earned him the praise of progressives such as AOC. It's made centrists such as Joe Manchin admit it makes him uncomfortable. And it's made economist Robert Reich tweet that Biden could be as transformative as FDR. All right, here's the itemized receipt. The American Rescue Plan that passed last month without any GOP votes, $1.9 trillion. The American Jobs Plan that's currently being written up, $2.3 trillion. And the American Families Plan unveiled Wednesday, $1.8 trillion. I'll do the math, it adds up to 6 Trillion dollars. So, has being president turned Joe Biden into a more progressive version of Bernie Sanders, or is this just what a Democratic centrist looks like in 2021? Here to discuss that question, we have Carla Marinucci, Politico's California Playbook senior writer, and Zach Corser, director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. All right, Uh, during one of the debates, I remember, uh, guys, Joe Biden was asked about the progressive wing of the party, and he made it clear that as president, he was the head of the Democratic Party? Zach, considering Biden's
3: political past and his present, what's a Democrat in 2021 look like? Oh, great question. Um, You know, there's a book called Politics Presidents Make by Stephen Skronik. And uh, sort of to oversimplify his thesis, he, he makes this case that presidents are agents of change and they have the potential to transition our politics. And I think that's why one of the reasons why we start hearing these comparisons to FDR, is because, you know, FDR is sort of the irresistible example of this, you know, uh, a transformational president who moved the country in a significantly different direction, at, you know, during the Great Depression and, of course, during World War II. And I think, you know, it as, that sort of begs the question, what is it that, that Biden is doing to transition our country? And obviously spending is a key, but the question is spending on what? And it's clear that it's spending a lot of it on social welfare, uh, the way in which he's defined... Um, Infrastructure, for example, is very much, I think, a kind of ambitious move towards a more European style social democracy, hence the comparisons to, to Bernie Stan- Sanders. But it's all done, I think, under you know a different kind of moderate democrat face. And I think the the sort of raw material, political material that Biden is working with to try to fuel the politics of this transition is really COVID. You know, I think COVID for many people exposed the, the high needs there are for many people in America for support, social support, and also exposed the fragility of our national social welfare programs, you know, whether in the states or in the federal government. So you know, he's, he's got to go a long way to success in the sense that not only does he have to prove that uh, you know, the federal government is capable of managing this increase competently, He's got to show how to pay for it. So, you know, it's it's big ambitions and big ideas. People seem open to the idea right now, but he's got a long way to go to show how we pay for it and whether government is capable of it because legitimacy of government has been sort of a, a continuing theme of the GOP. And
2: Carla, I've got some uh, centrist friends who say, this is not what I voted for. Uh, you know, They they they've they all told me this, right? But I'm wondering, can all of this be chalked up as a sign of the pandemic times? I mean, if, if COVID hadn't happened, many maybe President Biden's first 100 days would have gone more like Jerry Brown's philosophy on canoeing and politics. Paddle to the left, paddle to the right, stay moving forward and stay in the middle. <laughs>
4: Right, right. Exactly. I mean, you know, as you said, you know, Biden was elected with that promise to work across the aisle to sort of paddle to the right, and paddle to the left. Uh, well, let's remember Republicans, you know, from the day of his election, even before, uh, have been pretty tough about reaching out to him. They've been, you know, Kevin McCarthy out there daily, sort of lambasting his policies as socialist, radical. Uh, And I think this has been one of the things we've seen a departure from Trump and that Biden's speech this week was much more sort of conciliatory. He didn't necessarily reach out to Republicans, you know, except for a a shout out to Mitch McConnell at one point, but he didn't attack Republicans either. And we have seen in the beginnings of the Biden administration some examples of bipartisanship, uh, you know, for instance, unanimous passage of three bills, including the Save Lives Act on COVID uh, and and a bill that retroactively extended Social Security disability benefits. There were things that Republicans and Democrats agreed upon, but you're absolutely right. I mean, at this point, um, the paddle to the right and paddle to the left is exactly what Republicans are uh, criticizing him on, They want to see more of that paddle to the right, and uh, whether they're going to get that or not, that's the question here.
2: And, Zach, Biden said on Wednesday that he was willing to listen to GOP ideas on infrastructure, but he wouldn't wait forever. Is that $6 trillion train already left the station?
3: Well, it's leaving. Um, You know, there's incredible pressure on Biden to accomplish something by November next year because the House of Representatives in peril right now in terms of, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're thinking you're going to lose this soon. The census numbers just came out. California is losing a seat for the first time in its history. And where's the population shifting? It's shifting to Southern Republican states. So the stakes are higher now for the Democrats to, to keep the House. And so Biden's timeline may end at the end of next year. Uh, so he's under enormous pressure to accomplish something now while he still has, you know, a, a working majority. And I think really it's up to the GOP to decide about you know lobbying Biden. I, I think it's not the other way around. Mm. It's sort of strange that you know Biden has made these commitments and he talks about bipartisanship, but you know the, the onus to compromise, as it were, is really on the GOP side, not on Biden's side. And, and and I think unless and until the GOP you know say makes an overture to Joe Manchin, for example, and tries to find common cause with him on spending. They're not, you know, a frontal assault, you know, standing in front of the West Wing door and saying, hey, listen to us. I I don't think Biden, the the politics of it make any sense. I mean, Biden's just going to get this done because he has to get it done.
2: You know, watching Joe Biden speak, you didn't have to look very far to see how high California's influence is in D.C. I mean, you had Speaker Nancy Pelosi and VP Kamala Harris sitting there right behind the president. And and, and that's without really running down the list of other Californians in his cabinet. Uh, Carla, what are the biggest ways that you see this state's fingerprints on what could become national policy?
4: Well, you know, aside from that historic picture of the two women from California, you know, taking the top spots behind the president this week, we have already seen that, you know, heavy imprint of California on the Biden administration. Look, I mean, Gavin Newsom likes to talk about California as America's coming attraction, as the center of innovation economy, the place where big ideas are born. And already it looks like California is becoming an incubator of those big ideas in the Biden-Harris administration and with a democratically controlled Congress when you've got Nancy Pelosi there. You're seeing um, you know, a, a drop in terms of Trump's opposition to, to California challenging emissions rules. That is, uh, Biden is giving California back, restoring to California the power to set its own tough pollution standards. That's a very big deal. And then other issues like uh, Representative Karen Bass pushing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, we're seeing um, efforts to move ahead with that. Yeah, uh, this week, Biden uh, assigned to Harris. Uh, she's she's already been given the the portfolio on immigration, and this week. Broadband policy. And that was California began that in 1996. I remember covering President Clinton and Al Gore coming to California and virtually laying the wires for the internet at that time. So California moves ahead on that one, too. Um, I mean, so for all those East Coast stories about California's demise, et cetera. Under the Biden administration, look, California um, rises, it looks like, in terms of its influence, intellectual influence, political influence on some key policy issues.
2: It's State of Affairs on take two with Zach Corser of Claremont McKenna College and Carla Marinucci of Politico. Well, since we're here, let's just stay in California because uh, we're probably definitely on the way to a recall election of Gavin Newsom. So, Carla, really quick, what parts of the state were really feeling that recall vibe?
4: Well, you know, Gavin Newsom won re-election by a landslide in 2018. That's the, that was the biggest landslide for a non-incumbent since 1930. But let's remember, 23 counties in California voted for Donald Trump in the last election, and pretty much those were the ones that delivered big time for the recall Newsom campaign. If you go through the Central Valley now, you'll see, those areas northeast of Sacramento, those rural sort of right-leaning counties. They had some very high uh, signature rates uh, uh, and, and, and the recall, you know, basically didn't do as well in the densely populated areas. Of course, the San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles County, which is, of course, the, the powerhouse, the home to one quarter of the state's population, uh, basically just 16 percent of the people signed in. So we're seeing the same political divide that we saw in the election. Uh, California is overwhelmingly blue. But those 1.5 million signatures needed to qualify that recall came right from the Trump pocket there.
2: So, Zach Corser, with this data in mind, what kind of California voters can Newsom count on and which ones should he worry about?
3: Well, I mean, first thing I would say is that there's a trend all over the country, whether you're running for city council or governor, that we have these nationalized elections and national themes just pervade everything we do. And I think in the opening gambits from the Newsom campaign and others, We see the the tenor of the campaign being about you know it's just a a partisan recall in fact you know newsom calls it the republican recall and i think that only gets him so far i think he needs to focus on achievements you know crow about his windfall budget you know the the big federal aid that's coming in from the biden administration you know the schools reopening the successful vaccine campaign you know flood with positive messaging i think he needs to see this as kind of a, a vote of confidence, rather than sort of trying to descend back into a kind of partisan food fight and trying to negate the GOP. You know, it's I think California voters right now they're not in the mood to to grind through sort of Trump-like culture war political clashes. I think they want to see outcomes and they want to see accomplishments.
2: Carla, what about you? What kind of voter do you think uh, he needs to worry about in California?
4: You know, there's about a third of the voters here are no party preference voters. I think he has to worry about them. And look, uh, he has to worry how the events between now and November might change the landscape of this recall. I mean, that's a lifetime in politics. There's a wildfire season. There's planned power outages that could affect millions of people, possibly Mm -hmm. the effects of the drought. Uh, I think uh, at at this point, uh, those no party preference voters and some of the Democratic voters who were just angry with the way he handled COVID. It looks like the newest polls show that more than eight and 10 Californians um, still think students are falling behind, but the majority of Californians think Newsom is doing a good job on schools and doing a good job on economic recovery in California. If that holds, he'll, he'll be doing okay. But that's the big question. A, uh, a, eight Eight months, nine months from now till then, I mean, a lot
2: can happen. So, is that course then what do you think if the GOP, the California GOP or say Kevin Faulkner went up to you Zach and said what's the what's the number one thing I should attack Newsom on? What would you say? They say they hired <laughs> well, you. I'd... Say they hired you as a political consultant. <laughs> I don't want you. Let's just let's just make it a money a thing.
3: Well, I would say be an opportunist <laughs> and just dog Newsom's failures whether perceived or real. Uh, you know, Carla pointed this out, right? You know, we've probably got some power outages ahead of us in the Bay Area. That's going to cause some real unhappiness. Put that square at his feet. Talk about uh, the drought and talk about fire response and even talk about homelessness. I mean, I was looking through Kevin Faulkner's website and you know, while the GOP is not nearly as focused, I think, in terms of policy or spending on solving uh, housing, the housing crisis or homelessness, I think they're going to try to dog uh, Newsom about his accomplishments or lack thereof on this issue. So be an opportunist, because, again, I think Carla's is also right, you know, in terms of unaffiliated voters in California. They're not looking for partisan food fights. They're looking for accomplishments. And if you can try to build a case that Newsom is incompetent or is incapable of meeting the what's happening in California, you know, little by little, you're going to wear him down. And maybe by October, he's going to be in tough shape.
2: What do you think, Carla? What are, what are going to be the Republican talking points on Newsom this summer?
4: I think one of their biggest talking points is going to be the EDD scandal, the employment development department. Uh, that we, you know, the headlines were this much as $31 billion in unemployment funds were paid out to scammers. And remember that millions of Californians were, did not get their checks on time. That is an issue that is still hanging out there for Republicans. They know it. Uh, and they're gonna keep hammering Newsom on that. There's other issues about how you know special interest running his uh, or behind his office, uh, the, uh, out, the outsourced uh, vaccine distribution to Blue Shield, for instance, behested payments, how much is he in the pocket of big corporations, et cetera. So they'll be watching his campaign donations. Uh, And they'll
2: be trying to hammer him on that as well. All right. Moving on. More of California has slipped into the extreme drought range and it's really bad and it's really dry. And you don't have to live here for more than 10 minutes really to know all the ways that this is going to cost California a lot of money. So state senators uh, in Sacramento are going to fight fire with cash. Zach Corser, how does California first have cash to spend considering the pandemic
3: and where's this money coming from? You know, we've been talking for a while about this windfall budget. I mean, we we were thought that maybe California could slip into a huge budget deficit of, you know, $50 billion, but instead we're, we're looking at $15 billion to spend. And add to that, the Biden administration sending $26 billion to California. So there's a huge amount of money here to deal with these problems. And, you know, one of the reasons why we have so much is the fact that, you know, California's tax system really is responsive to growth, economic growth, particularly amongst the highest earners, because our income tax responds to big capital gains and other kinds of high earner um, income adjustments. So, you know, when the economy booms, California's budget booms as well. To the drought spending, Carla, how much is going to be spent on the drought and how is it going
2: to be spent? Unless unless they're somehow making rain with this money, I don't know what, uh, <laughs> yes. what they're going to do.
4: It's a big breakdown. I mean, the California Senate on Thursday put forth a $3.4 billion proposal, and and basically it's designed to give the state some protection against this uh, crisis. I mean, it doesn't include money for big ticket projects like new reservoirs or dams or repairing canals, and that's something the Republicans want. It's supposed to strengthen what's already there, Uh, for instance, making sure smaller and rural communities don't lack for potable water. It's got about $75 million to pay for things uh, like to measure snow and rainfall to help make uh, officials make decisions about water storage. It's got about $15 in there to prepare for weather impacts like atmospheric rivers. And about a third of the money, or about a billion dollars, is going to go to pay off the accumulated debt of unpaid water bills in the state. Those were racked up during the COVID economic downturn. I mean, right now, Assembly Democrats, they also, you know, have included included sort of increased investments like drought resiliency in there uh we haven't seen newsom's updated budget proposal yet it's coming but remember it's all up in the air until they all agree on new spending
2: carla marinucci politico's california playbook senior writer and zach Corser, director of the policy lab at claremont mckenna college zach carla thanks a lot have a great weekend okay All right, my granddaughters didn't want to go back to campus at first. They actually both blossomed learning online. Their schoolwork got better. If you can believe it, they actually came out of their shell online. They raised their hand. They were participating like never before. Coming up, find out while some kids couldn't wait to go back to campus, some were actually good with Zoom in a room. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
3: So many days
2: since you went away. Back now with more take two on eighty nine point three KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. The LA Unified School District's return to campus plan is complete now, as of today. All LAUSD students have gotten the chance to attend in-person classes again. For now, most are choosing to stick with fully online courses, especially in high schools. The district expects just one in five high schoolers back on campus. But educators say many of those returning students are the ones most in need of a place to go. KPCC's Kyle Stokes reports.
5: A lot of LAUSD high schoolers have good reasons for staying home. It's mostly a safety thing. Dorsey High School senior Sarah Giotto worried about exposing her parents and siblings to the virus when we talked in March. Also, Giotto doesn't mind online classes. I
6: prefer being in my own space. I think I've gotten used to you know, having the assignment posted and listening to the teachers at home.
5: Plus the alternative LAUSD gave to middle and high schoolers was to report to campus every other day and attend the same online classes, but from a single classroom, no moving between rooms each period. The choice has been a no brainer for students with quiet homes and stable Wi-Fi, but some students need a place to escape the distractions of home.
1: For me, taking care of my brother and also doing Zoom is like a little hectic.
5: Nadaline Teodoro is a senior at Garfield High School in East LA. Her brother's four years old, and her parents are both working.
1: It gets a little draining. You know, you have to feed the little kid and then also (laughs) do work, so it's a
7: lot, yeah.
5: So Teodoro is trying out a return to campus. Some of her classmates say they're coming back to reclaim some normalcy in their senior year. For other high schoolers, though, the stakes are even higher, like graduating on time.
4: Hope
5: you have the time of your life. Thank you. On the first day back, Simon Rodia Continuation School held a return-to-campus ceremony for 30 high schoolers, featuring music from a former student and words from Superintendent Austin Butner. Okay.
3: So reach out. We're here to help
5: you find your own best self. Thank you. Then Rodia's social worker, Maria Vaquerano, stepped to the mic. And you being back here shows that you're so invested completing your high school diploma and you are not alone. This is a continuation school and so many of the students that are here, if not all of them, have had issues with attendance, um, fallen behind on their grades, um, behavioral issues. Continuation schools offer stripped down classes so students can make up credits fast and still graduate. There are online versions but Rodia principal Victorio Gutierrez says there's just something about getting all the coursework in one thick paper packet that doesn't quite translate over Zoom.
6: They want something with paper. It's, it's weird. It's just as much as they think they're advanced when it comes to technology, paper is still a form of security for most of our
5: kids and adults. At Rodilla, this paper is called a contract. Gutierrez calls out to a student. Right, Pimentel? Pimentel, don't you like doing the contracts with the paper instead of just having them through Zoom? Haley Pimentel says, yeah, paper. She's supposed to graduate this year, but has a lot of credits to make up. At home, Pimentel has to Zoom in the same room as her sister. She can't stay focused. On campus, she says she's a lot more likely to finish the work for her diploma.
1: At school, like, you know that, like, they're going to be on you. They're going to tell you, like, oh, like, you know. And at home, like, you don't have the same thing as you have at, like, at school.
5: Students at Rodilla are shouldering huge burdens. Social worker Maria Vaquerano says she knows of students living in overcrowded quarters, experiencing homelessness, grieving relatives lost to COVID-19. And that's just what she knows about. And I don't think that we will be able to grab on the full picture until we have them again back in full in-person learning next year. For now, the immediate challenge for some students is graduation. In March, 20% of all LAUSD high schoolers were missing at least one class they need for a diploma. And according to an analysis by Great Public Schools Now among this year's juniors, at least 40% are at least one class off track. Covering education, I'm Kyle Stokes.
2: You just heard about some of the pressure some kids experienced during school at home during the pandemic. Having to care for younger siblings while going to class or just cramped shared spaces with others that made it difficult to concentrate. But even without that kind of chaos, it's been a hard year for young people. Learning via Zoom, not seeing friends in person, missing milestones. So now that older students are able to return to campus this week, we want to talk about how adolescents have been faring during this time, emotionally speaking. Here to discuss this, we have with us Dr. Mari Ratzik, clinical psychologist with the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Doctor, welcome.
7: Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Sure. Now, for the teens that you see in your practice, what would you say has been the greatest challenge for them for this past year?
7: Oh my gosh, where do we start? Many of our youth are dealing with multiple levels of trauma, not just family loss from the COVID pandemic, but just economic loss job loss, being stuck at home, loss of social interaction with people. So our young people are really dealing with a lot of different aspects going back to school. So I think for some of them, going back to school has been a nice idea because they're getting out of the house finally, they're finally able to interact with others. For others, there's still the concern about COVID infection. And so some of our young people have decided just to finish up the school year and stay on Zoom schooling from home.
2: What have you found to be the greatest challenge for kids when it comes to remote learning? What, what have you seen and heard there?
7: We work with a lot of young people, with developmental disabilities, autism or intellectual disabilities. Some of the challenges have been on focusing, being able to pay attention, um, not getting bored, learning how to speak up. Just the fact that uh, some young people with autism have a difficult time looking at themselves or looking into a computer and staring just navigating the whole kind of visual and the electronic aspects of a Zoom type of learning situation has been difficult for some young people. Now, that being said, some of our young people have really liked having Zoom. It actually works for them if they've already been managing social anxiety or managing anxieties to begin with. It actually has worked. So, I can anticipate a future where this tele-learning will be part of an offering if you have a special needs young person or an IEP, that there may be this hybrid kind of model. I think there are some young people who can learn through it and others, you know, being back on the campus is the way to go.
2: What's been the effect of all of these different challenges on teens' mental health and their ability to learn?
7: We have been seeing young people who have felt very isolated, which leads to depression and an The effects are myriad, managing loss. So that's just a pile on effect. So we here at Children's, the behavioral health program that I work with, the whole hospital has really pivoted very quickly to offering mental health services online just to help young people struggling with some of these issues. The social isolation piece for some can be very debilitating. And so that's been a really hard struggle um, working, you know, from home and trying to integrate school on top of just managing their mood disorders and their mood symptoms.
2: Doctor, there's been some data that suggests that eating disorders among teens has increased and and along with other destructive behaviors. Why do you think that is?
7: I'm not exactly sure, but I can hypothesize that the, the fact that you're on a Zoom call, you're looking at yourself all the time. So it's an interesting dynamic where you're suddenly staring at yourself a lot. So we know that young people are developmentally very kind of self-absorbed and, and look at themselves and focus on their um, body types and that kind of thing. I think some of that increase comes from that phenomenon. You know, they're also at home a lot. Their parents see what they're doing now more. So I don't know if disordered eating comes out of that. Um, disordered eating is linked to anxiety. So can this disordered eating be part of that underlying anxiousness that young people are manifesting? And through food now, that's one way of doing it. But yes, we have been seeing uh, more individuals come to us with eating disorders.
2: We're talking to Dr. Mari Radzik, a clinical psychologist with the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Doctor, what are some of the ways you've tried to help kids and their families navigate this year?
7: Everybody's very individual. So, all of the mental health professionals that I work with have really drilled in on how best to alleviate a lot of the barriers to access. So, at the very beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of us running around trying to find access to Wi Fi and um, ability to, to hotspot or link onto a computer because at the beginning, there were none of those resources really embedded. That speaks to kind of the social justice piece of making sure that everybody has access to the internet across the city, no matter what income you're, you come from. Other things that we've tried to help scaffold is um, having patients be seen through their therapy very easily because now we can pretty much offer appointments anytime. So actually, we've been able to provide therapy because we've reduced the barriers like taking the bus, jumping on a train, we can now see patients across the county rather than just people locally.
2: Doctor, I realize that uh, every kid is its own individual case study in this, but when it comes to uh, heading back to campus, what do you see as the benefits, be it now or in the fall?
7: It's important for young people to navigate the social skills that is required when they go to school, how to manage the hierarchies and the different groups at school, how to talk to teachers, I think access to uh, supports at school is a little bit easier when you're in person. How to navigate even getting to school, bus, car, that kind of thing. It's important for young people who have never been to campuses to have some scaffolding into that campus because they um, have never actually been on campus before.
2: How would you ideally like to see schools prepare to welcome students back, especially those who have experienced trauma? What services should be available to them?
7: We are really hoping that campuses are proactive in providing and alerting families of the supports that they have for young people on campus, that they provide open door policy for school counselors, that they have people that are moving around the campus and kind of keeping an eye out for young people. uh, Because I don't know that young people are going to ask for help as much versus if they know that it's there, they might avail themselves of those services. I know that, uh, for example, LAUSD has many mental health services on campus, so I'm I'm really hoping that they kind of beef it up and be proactive and put it forward rather than having young people uh, have to reach out for it and informing parents of those services as well. That's really important,
2: Doctor. Generally, what advice would you give to parents right now as they're trying to figure out and navigate what to do with their kids, uh, either now or in the fall to head back to campus?
7: Good advice for parents would be to be patient to be supportive, to understand that actually going back to school may bring up some issues that they have not seen in the past, to be able to use this summer to um, transition to being back into school. If the school is offering some summer school bridging to take advantage of that, it's going to take a little while to transition back to our quote-unquote normal life, and so Having families really understand that the school is there for them and to reach out, ask questions. No question is a bad question. I think that it's a win-win then for our young people as they transition back into school.
2: That's Dr. Amari Ratzik, clinical psychologist with the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Doctor, thank you very much. You're welcome. A few days before the Derek Chauvin verdict came in, we heard from an author and activist who said she was having trouble watching the trial because the threat of acquittal was in the pit of her stomach. Acquittal didn't happen. Conviction did on all three counts. But she still has a bad feeling in her belly because of the decision that's coming next. Find out what that is when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Ah.
2: Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Amy Martinez. A little over two weeks ago, we heard from author and activist Caroline Randall Williams a few days before the jury in the Derek Chauvin murder trial came to their decision. It had not been easy for her to watch the trial. The testimony and video evidence were tough enough to process, but one other thing hung over Caroline.
6: What's been hard about the trial is... The dread of acquittal. And I think because every piece of meaningful evidence supports supports conviction, in my opinion.
2: And conviction is what happened on all three counts, two murder, one manslaughter. Caroline Randall-Williams, welcome back. And, and what did you feel when you heard the verdict?
6: It's funny to hear. It's maybe not funny is the wrong word. It's uh, striking to me to hear that interview on the other side of themes. Because um, I really did feel that dread. Uh, and I think it was certainly a relief or some kind of release, but it wasn't a like comprehensive sense of relief, I think. You know, I think it was a justice for the Floyd family and a sense of, I think, sane people who were watching and thinking and feeling what I felt felt okay something sane happened here. But the whole situation is still insane. But I definitely felt some relief. And I'll say I watched it with my uh, students because the New York Times, I think, sent out a notification that the verdict was going to be released between 3.30 and 4. And I think that was about at 3 o'clock. And I had a a Zoom room full of students and a writing seminar. And the class was supposed to go from 2 to 5. And I said, y'all, at 3.30, we are turning on MSNBC, (laughs) and we're all going to experience history together.
2: What did you see? What did you see in their faces?
6: Oh, my gosh. I mean, surprise, relief, I think um, incredulity. Some of them were like, of course, because they're young and in a wonderful way, just thought, well, surely America won't do this wrong. Some real release and like sort of very poignant emotion from some of my students as well.
2: You know, Michael Harriet's column in The Root uh, right after was titled Justice, I Guess. And I think I think that might have been one of the better ways to summarize the reaction Mm -hmm. that I saw. Not joy, not relief, not apathy, but not indifference either. How did the reactions that you saw generally, Caroline, inform you on how black people around America felt about the verdict?
6: I'm jealous of Michael for that title is what I'll say. You know, it was powerful seeing. Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson uh, uh, standing alongside the Floyd family. But to me, it sort of underscored what we were all feeling that like, we've been in this for a long time. We've been working toward some kind of answer like this a long time, but the systems that allowed this to happen in the first place are just still thriving. And so I think we just went, all right, we got one, but we've just got so much work left to do. I think it, Micaiah Brown, like, excuse me, Micaiah Bryant, like right afterward. That's the that was the reminder. That was the wake-up call that this is just we still just got a very great deal of work.
2: How do you square the verdict with the shootings that have happened since?
6: The cynical thing to say is business as usual remains business as usual. There are ways in which the chauvin conviction is complicated because now you know the right can point to it and say, see when bad cops do bad things, Uh, they get prosecuted and it works out so the justice system's not broken and we don't need police reform because when things go wrong, it's called out and this is our example. And I think what we're seeing with all of these shootings that have continued to happen in the wake of the conviction is that there's a certain kind of like audacity and smugness and determination not to be redressed within the policing community that is scary to me.
2: Now, Chauvin's conviction is one thing. Sentencing is the next phase, and there's still the trial for the three other Minneapolis police officers that watched Chauvin murder George Floyd. Considering Caroline the dread that you had before for the verdict, what are you feeling about what might happen in sentencing and what message that will send?
6: I don't know how I'll feel, to be honest. Like I really and I can't anticipate it because it's so without precedent him getting convicted in the first place. Um, I think that my eyes are turning to the judge because I want to know, I mean, I think that anyone who watches videos, he doesn't seem to be a crazy person or an unethical one in any fundamental way. So he understands that Derek Chauvin's guilty. Um, I don't know what he thinks that he's supposed to do with that. And I think that, you know, you talk about the blue wall of silence, but there's, there are other forms of solidarity. There's conservative solidarity. There's, uh. Race-based solidarity, there's gender-based solidarity. And I'm wondering whether or not this judge is going to have unexamined bias that makes him not sentence this man as profoundly as you know many of us believe he deserves.
2: You know, I just spoke with a U.S. Congresswoman Karen Bass, who thinks that 40 years should be what Derek Chauvin gets, and that uh, that is almost a baseline of what we should be talking about when we think about sentencing Derek Chauvin. Um, If it's anything under 40 years, what message does that send, you think?
6: One, I agree completely with Karen Bass. I think it should be a minimum of 40 years. I think that if he gets anything less than that, it will be a testimony to the fact that this system is still. Even if it works in terms of getting a conviction, the wild sweep of what's left up to human discretion means that Black people's lives are going to come second until we redress and reform it.
2: We're talking to Caroline Randall Williams. Her most recent essay for The New York Times is titled, You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument. Uh, Speaking of Congresswoman Bass, uh, she feels very confident that the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act will get through Congress and get through the Senate. Uh, Bass is working with Senators Cory Booker and Tim Scott on a compromise that uh, will Hopefully, at least she says, uh, get past the Senate and get to the president's desk. Now, the sticking point, Caroline, is qualified immunity, which, in a nutshell, shields police from accountability when using excessive force and also prevents victims from getting justice. Uh, Caroline, when we last spoke, police immunity was a problem for you as well. If you were in a room with Bass, Booker and Scott, how hard of a line would you draw on that?
6: I think it's probably my highest order concern. Because qualified immunity prevents us from examining and reforming bias. If you're immune from like having the justice system examine your choice making by like just by virtue of your badge, then you can harbor bias. You can harbor racism. You can harbor bigotry, and have that be oh, I felt in danger. I made a split second decision. And if you felt in danger only because you're not used to feeling safe around black people, and then you're immune from being reproached for that, then we're never going to fix this system. People have to be accountable.
2: Last summer, removing qualified immunity was a non-starter for Republicans. Now they're willing to allow for families to sue police departments rather than the officers. Uh, Caroline, what do you think of that option if it means that the rest of the bill, the rest of the George Floyd bill, gets signed into law?
6: I think I can't. I'm trying to decide in real time if I'm going to be able to stand by what I'm saying right now. If uh, in, a, in cross examination, but
2: and that's yeah. the tough part of this, right, Caroline? Because in, yeah, in, in the moment, I mean, we all have to make choices on what we're willing to live with.
6: I think it's a start, and I think that we live in a country where we can redress and reform and revisit and reframe, and I think we have to. We we can't miss a chance to make a start if there's a compromise of that scale that people can file lawsuits against the police department, I think that that is, that is meaningfully something I think, but I'm, I still, I have, I'd have to continue to contemplate that.
2: Cause 'cause when I was thinking about this question to ask you, I tried to put myself in your shoes based Mm -hmm. on what I knew from the last time we spoke. And I was thinking that, if you sue police departments, or at least if families are allowed to sue police departments, wouldn't it put more pressure on departments as a whole to root out poor cops and then incentivize these departments to change the cultures and identify those biases that lead to Black people getting shot and killed by police?
6: Yeah, I think, and I think that, you know, there is something about the, you know, you can sue the whole group. Um, I think it's going to identify patterns of misbehavior, maybe even more effectively in some ways. But then I also think individuals need to know that they it could because it's also going to create different kinds of unity too you think about social dynamics like that saying well now if you attack one of us you attack all of us that's going to do interesting things at the blue wall
2: yeah there are all kinds of different ways uh, it could go um last thing caroline george floyd should be alive he's not what direction do you think his murder has pointed america as it relates to police reform
6: I mean, I think it's split the country and pointed us in two different directions. Um, And I hope that if we're marching one group to the left and one group to the right, we keep marching in a circle and meet in the middle somewhere so that we can all live safely in this country together. Um, I think that the direction it's pointed us in is toward further fracture that I think will then reveal something more productive ultimately, I hope.
2: That's Caroline Randall Williams. Her most recent essay for the New York Times is titled, You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument. Caroline, thanks for coming back.
6: Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation as ever.
2: Right, if you're going to be a stand-up comedian, you got to have some really thick skin. And most of the comedians I've spoken to have that. But comedians are also some of the smartest people around. Coming up, meet a Koreatown comic who's using her wit and wits to educate and save a buck. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay
0: with us. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
2: Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC, in most places you get your podcast. Sammy Martinez. Christina Wong wears all the hats. She's a comedian, a community activist, and a director. She's an in demand speaker at colleges and conferences and an elected member of the Koreatown Neighborhood Council. Yeah, really, really busy, but she's taken on a new calling. She's trying to show the world how much food we waste while also trying to save herself a buck. For more than a year using food banks and a little hustle, she's lived on about 50 bucks a month in groceries. And she documents it all in hilarious Instagram videos to try and get others to join the cause. Take-Two contributor Juliana Mayo went along for one of her food bank shopping trips and brought us back this story.
1: Hello! It's me, your favorite food bank influencer, Christina Wong. Today's a huge day. I'm going to That's Christina Wong recording her latest haul video. You know, those videos where people go shopping and show you all the amazing stuff they got? Well, the difference is, all of her great stuff comes from a food bank, not the pricey stores of most haul videos. This isn't conspicuous consumption. Think performance art meets community activism. So I started to make these videos
7: where I just wanted people to see how much you can get and how not shameful it was to go and how like actually just fun it was. We have enough in this country, we just
1: distribute it wrong. I met Wong and two of her friends in the crowded parking lot of World Harvest Food Bank, an unassuming business on Venice Boulevard in LA. She started this project pre-pandemic. Over a year later, with her $1,000 average monthly food costs down to just 50 bucks, she's still going strong. And she's convincing people to join what she's calling her food bank fold, one video at a time. Just listen to her friend Jessica Hanna, who went along for the first time last year after she lost her job. She turned me on to it, and
7: I came in, volunteered, and was able to feed myself really well, and was just like, this is amazing. Why is this not packed with people all the time?
1: Volunteer work is one way World Harvest makes food available to everyone. Four hours of work earns you a cart. 40 bucks gets you the same cart and helps them keep the lights on. On the day I tagged along, Hannah had earned a free shopping cart full of groceries from her frequent shopper cart, which got the whole joint pretty excited.
6: I have a buck for a free cart. And they were
1: off, checking out the items that came pre-packed in the cart, things like seaweed snacks and water bottles from a random German airline then digging through produce, already trying to plan their upcoming meals.
7: So I'm grabbing peppers right now, even though I don't know what I'm gonna do with them. I'm just excited. These these yellow peppers are gorgeous. Oh, they're so gorgeous.
1: After produce, it was on to meat and dairy, where World Harvest founder, Glenn Corrado, handed over some very fancy chicken.
3: This is 10 pounds of Jadari chicken. Free range, non-GMO, the best of the best of the best.
1: Curato receives food from premium markets, airlines and luxury hotels, none of which he was comfortable sharing publicly. But let's just say his off-the-record name dropping was impressive. He says World Harvest has seen a 300% increase in customers since the pandemic began, which makes sense. Food insecurity in Southern California, according to a USC study, has doubled among low income households and increased 20% among those that are not.
3: My average customer is actually middle class. I would say probably 20 or 30% might be on EBT, and the rest are hard working individuals. You know, they're just trying to make it.
1: Curado wants everyone, regardless of financial need, to feel comfortable shopping at World Harvest, citing the ridiculous amount of food waste in the country. And Wong agrees. Having seen so much food destined for the dump, she wonders how she could ever go back to her old normal again.
7: Now when I eat out, I'm like, oh my god, how did I ever spend like 30, 40 bucks so casually on one meal? And now I realize that whole amount is what I could live on for a month.
1: At World Harvest, $40 buys them so much food. So much food. Then, whatever they can eat, they pass along. Oftentimes, I will take whatever I can't use, then I will will go and I'll drop it at the community fridges. Speaking of so much food... After Meat and Dairy, they moved on to their final stop of the visit, prepared foods, and were handed even more goodies. Wonderful. Woo-hoo! Ah, thank you so much. Gracias. Before making their way to the parking lot, where they divided up their haul and said goodbye. Until next time.
7: Thank you, World Harvest. Thank you, Food Bank Daddy. For
1: Take Two, I'm Juliana Mayo.
2: All right. To read more about Christina Wong's food bank adventures or to find our guide on where to get food and financial assistance, head over to our website, LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. All right. That's a wrap for take two this week. Our producers are Itzy Quintanilla and Julia Paskin. They also direct the show. Phoenix O also helped us out this week. Sophia James is our news apprentice. Take two is engineered by Hazmik Bogosian. Our senior producer and editor is Megan Larson. If you missed any part of the show today, just head on over to wherever you get your podcast. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter, at Take2. That's at Take2. I'm there as well, at AmartinezLA. That's at AmartinezLA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take2 is back Monday at 2. Marketplace is next.
4: The L.A.S. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.